Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. So as the fortunes of the world's richest people swell, how much is too much? Can a person be too rich? For more than a decade, philosopher and economist Ingrid Robaines has been considering these questions. And in her new book, she lays out some of the problems of extreme wealth, practical, political, and moral, and proposes a potential solution. Robaines writes, after a decade of analyzing and debating extreme wealth, I became convinced that we must create a world in which no one is super rich, that there must be a cap on the amount of wealth any one person can have. I call this limitarianism, she writes. So let's find out more of where she thinks the upper limit should be, for example, and delve into what she calls the regulative ideal of limitarianism and who it would help. Robain's new book is called Limitarianism, The Case Against Extreme Wealth, and she joins me now. Thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on the book. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you very much for having me. I guess we could start with a little bit of news for some context, if this is just an abstraction for people, like there are super rich, yeah. Last week, CNBC and others reported that Jeff Bezos will save at least $600 million by moving to Florida, a state with no income or capital gains tax. Last year, Bezos made about $7.9 million per hour, and his net worth is about $190 billion now. So how do we even get to this place in which someone could amass so much wealth? Yes. How did we get here? That's a good question, but I don't think it's like a recent phenomenon. It started already decades ago when we changed the form of the capitalism that we have. After the Second World War, we had what some economists called a mixed economy, where there was a balance between what the government provided and what the markets provided. And we've moved to a type of economy where we really trust the market completely. We've lost uh, faith in the government. We've also reduced the, the wealth of the government so that it can provide public goods. And that means that some are now reaping uh, uh, very high profits in the markets because they have extreme market power. So I guess limitarianism is kind of self-defining, but are you proposing specific things like a maximum wage or a maximum amount of wealth beyond which something happens at the level of the government? So the, the um, largest inequalities across the world are not so much in income, although those are also large, but it's really about inequality in, of wealth. And why is wealth so important? It has a different function in the, the lives of, of people. Namely, if you have some, some wealth, just think of some savings or a house that you partly own, you have, a, you have something to to plan, to invest, to recover if some bad shocks happen. And we just know that from, from the fantastic data that have been gathered by economists over the last decades, that wealth inequality is extremely unequal. Just to give you the figures for the US, half of the US, of the American population, so 50% of the population, 
has 2.3% of uh, all the wealth. Whereas if you look at the top 10%, it has 73% of all the wealth, with 34% going to just one out of every 100 Americans. So it's, and that is really going back to uh, wealth inequality numbers that we know from the Gilded Age. Listeners, we can take your questions and comments on this. Do you think that the case against the, the against extreme wealth is a convincing one and there should be rules and regulations and tax rates consistent with limitarianism, which is the title of the new book by our guest, philosopher and economist Ingrid Robains, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Where do you think the cap should be? What do you think the rules should be if we were to start a limitarian movement in this country? Let's say 212-433-9692. Comments, questions, ideas, call or text. Ingrid, I'd like you to get as specific as you can about how it would help everyone else to have limitarian limits. Um, how specifically would a cap on wealth solve other people's problems? Does the limit necessarily result in a redistribution that leads to less poverty, less working class struggle? What, what happens once that wealth is taxed or otherwise limited? Yes, this is really the, the most important question, I believe. So I don't think it should just be tax. We, tax is like only one, uh, one possible tool and one that comes at the very end. What you basically should have is an economy that's structured in a different way so that what we produce together is divided less unequally, hence more equally. Because right now what we see from the data is that the um, the share of uh, the economic production that went to the, to the to profit, so to the um, investors, has uh, increased over the last decades, whereas what goes to the workers uh, hasn't increased. So I think it's really the the fundamental question underlying these data about wealth inequality is. What does the economy create for us? What kind of world? And of course, the government is part of the economy, but the government has increasingly started to prioritize the interests of the more wealthy and has prioritized less the interests of ordinary people. So it is really a much bigger story than just the question about um, uh, whether we should have taxation at some point um, to rectify the, the massive inequalities that we observe. So what policies would you begin with? Well, I think we, when we, we had the mixed economy, both in the U.S., but also in Europe in the 50s, 60s, we had a much fairer division of uh, what a company would produce. So workers would get a larger share. So, for example, in the U.S., you have a group of activist millionaires. They're called uh, the patriotic millionaires. And they argue for a restoration of um, the wages of the, the least well-paid well workers up to the level where people can really live from those wages. Because in the uh, in the sixties, if you had if you were just in a middle class family, lower middle class family, you could live a decent life. But now it's increasingly difficult. 
because the real wages haven't gone up and the whereas uh, societies have developed so it is really also something to do for example with the role of unions in a company but also i think um it goes at an, at a deeper level it has to do with the ideology that we share across uh, affluent societies why do we believe that whatever the market can give us that it's morally ours we should see what we produce together as what we produce by collaborating. And hence the question of a fair division of those benefits is inevitable. So I do think there's deeper philosophical questions beyond the questions about measures. And those are also the ones that I tried to write about in my book. Raymond in Port Washington, you're on WNYC. Hi, Raymond. Hi, Hi. thank you for taking my call. I'm just uh, concerned, for lack of a better word, as to how the, the the set limit would be, would there be a creep, what I call a creep? You set a limit, and would it change? Would it get lower? How do you how do you keep that from happening? I remember days when Cablevision said, "Don't worry, you won't. There won't be any advertising on uh, on cable," and that turned out to be not true. And there are dozens of examples of how government says one thing, and then, of course, over time, the unintended consequences are that things change. So, is your concern kind of that it, is your concern that if there was a limit, there would be a slippery slope to where people were allowed to accumulate less and less wealth? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. Thank you, Ingrid. Yes, thanks. This is a great question. One of the reasons I argue in the book uh, why we should do something about extreme wealth concentration is that it's undermining democracy. And this is based on research that political scientists have done, where they show that increasingly the very rich uh, not only over, over influence much more what the policy choices are, but also, uh, for example, changes in tax law. So I'm really, one of my main concerns about why I advocate libertarianism is the value of democracy. So I, I totally um, think that the, the worry you express is one we should take into consideration. But if a, a more balanced economy and a more equal, or I should say less unequal division of wealth would also strengthen democracy, it should actually help us to defend ourselves against government measures that we do not want. But right now, we are increasingly losing control over those decisions because, as some political scientists say right now, the US, they doubt whether it's still a democracy and they call it an oligarchy, which is a, a form of government where those who have most money decide on what happens. Brett in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Brett. Hi. Um, is it true that the ancient Greeks uh, used exile to exile people who became too rich and powerful for the good of society? An ancient historical precedent for this, Ingrid? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I, it rings a bell. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a historian, but I can say that the idea of limitarianism was already in Plato. Plato argued that in order to uh, keep... Um, um, to basically avoid societal unrest and to keep stability in a in a police in a in a in a society, you had to limit 
the wealth concentration of the best of to four times that what the lowest uh, group would have, one to four. Whereas, of course, as the figures get, uh, now say, we have one to a zillion. So it's interesting that you find throughout the history of economic and political ideas, you find people who've argued for limiting inequality and limitarianism is indeed one way to talk about limiting inequality. My guest, if you're just joining us, is the philosopher and economist Ingrid Robaines, who holds the chair in Ethics of Institutions at Utrecht University and is the author now of Limitarianism, the Case Against Extreme Wealth. Um, since your book uh, and, and your outlook are global, how much is the United States a leader or the leader in inequality, and how much of an outlier if it is an outlier? Great question. So the U.S. has one of the greatest uh, wealth inequalities. Uh, you're not the leader. Actually, I don't think you want to be the leader because the leader is Russia. Russia huh. has still, yes, <laughs> it's. I don't think it's nice company uh, in the, um, the leadership board. What's surprising about the U.S. is, or what makes the U.S. special, is that it, it's not only in, in a group of countries that has high wealth inequality, but it's also very, very rich. So the average and the mean wealth, uh, family wealth or personal wealth in the U.S. is much higher than in most other countries. There are a few exceptions, like Switzerland has also a lot of wealth. and But if you look at, for example, the number of um, billionaires or not just, or say, uh, I have here in front of me the, share, the number of U.S. dollar millionaires in, in the world. And the U.S. has 38% of all U.S. dollar millionaires, whereas it only has 4.2% of the world population. So these data and all the other data that I looked at confirm that it's, the U.S. is at, at once, it's, it's very unequal, but it's also very, very rich. And this, I think, gives puts the U.S. in a unique position because actually the U.S. has the wealth to redistribute. South Africa also is a very unequal country, but it's much harder to redistribute or to rearrange the economy to make it less unequal if the total amount of wealth that you have in a country is much uh, smaller. Robert in Washington Heights here on WNYC with Ingrid Robaines. Hi, Robert. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, this is a, this is a, an important subject. It's it, it's not so much what people uh, are allowed to own, but what they're allowed to do with the, with the wealth and the money that they have. I mean, entire portions of our government have been purchased by the wealthy, which waters down our democracy tremendously. I mean, no you <laughs> no one can argue that the working class has as much political influence as the, as the, as the, as the, as the wealthy class. And there's a geometric aspect to all of this, that inequality begets inequality. The more things become unequal, the more things become more unequal. Uh, uh, the, 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 <laughs> the use of wealth to buy, to buy uh, politics, to buy politicians, to buy our government is, is obscene. And we're suffering today. We're suffering tremendously from it. It, 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 it there's racial aspects to it. it. It's it's. But as I say, 
before we limit what people can own, let's start to limit what they can do with their money. Like specifically uh, buying government policy through campaign finance. Ingrid, what do you think about that priority? Yes. This is this is also a fantastic question. So I agree that if we talk about uh, the value of democracy and, and the g- a good governance, that wealth is a very serious problem, as this listener uh, also rightly points out. And ideally, we should have walls between the sphere of money and the sphere of, of democracy and politics. And I should say that in Europe, those walls are stronger because of... Uh, more restrictive regulation, for example, on campaign financing and so on. So uh, that is definitely something that, um, if this is politically feasible, that the U.S. could do. But even in the most, um, in the countries that have this, that have the strongest walls between politics and and the sphere of money, we still see that the rich are having a disproportionate influence on politics. So that is why I think, together with all the other arguments I have in the book for uh, limiting wealth concentration, um, because there are very different arguments apart from, from democracy, that I still think it would be better if we want to protect democracy to also limit wealth, wealth concentration. I want to ask um, a question that kind of summarizes what a few listeners are calling or texting with, which is kind of, is this realistic politically in any way? One of one person who we're not going to have time to take their call said they remember talking about this in college in the 60s, and we've gone in the other direction. Another person said the 70s. This listener writes, how do we turn back the clock on extreme wealth? Where is the political will to change when capitalism has been allowed to run roughshod in the economy? Yeah, I, I I should say I totally understand this sentiment. And that's also why I call libertarianism a regulative ideal. It will take time to change things. But I do also see that there is an increasing movement of academics, thinkers, writers, politicians, and so on, who do want to change the type of capitalism that we have into something that is better for the planet and better for human beings. And we should also remember that if we look at the history of of the neoliberal movement that got us this type of capitalism that we currently have, they also needed decades to spread their views and to basically seize power. So I think it will require the coordinated efforts of very different types of people in society. And I would actually think all people who who think that the current system is not good for us and also not good for the planet to build, to start that movement and yes, then we will have to be patient, but perhaps we're doing it for our children or our grandchildren, but at least we have to start now if we want to avoid uh, even more dystopian scenarios. Michael in Harlem, you're on WNYC. Hi, Michael. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, if we still had the tax policy that we had um, in the post-war boom under Eisenhower, would this problem have developed in the way that it has? Ingrid? Yes, I can't comment on on American history, I should say. This is really beyond my area of expertise. But I do think we should learn from history and also learn from experiences in different countries. So there is also, I think, a big difference between the economic discussions we had in after the war and then uh, in the 60s and, and afterwards, which is that the ecological dimension was not so prominent. 
any discussion about a future economic system should put the planetary boundaries central. And then that means we have to think about many different goals or desiderata that we want an economic system to meet. But for me, the most important is that we will have this discussion among citizens, what kind of society do we want and what kind of economic system fits with that society. And we should start that conversation and then bring all the arguments and all the facts to the table. Um, to be clear, do you have a specific number in mind for limits? I do, but I want to say, I want before I tell you the number, I want to say two caveats. The first is that this is just to get the debate going. And the second is that the part of the numbers are based on research we did in the Netherlands, uh, where we did a survey um, among the Dutch population to ask where they would think that if you have more wealth, it doesn't improve your quality of life. But the Dutch context is very different from the American context, because in the Netherlands we have uh, a, a public healthcare system that's that's very good, and also we have a public pension system that m m that moves everybody around the poverty line. So that is two different uh, caveats. We did research and we found in 2018 that if you ask the Dutch population, where, when do you think you have so much money that if you have more money, it doesn't add to your quality of life? People said around 1 million euros per person per year. Now, we have to already add like almost 10% inflation. It's 2018 and so on. And there's a context. But there is a number, and I think each of us also has to find is out for ourselves because our individual circumstances are different, where having more money doesn't add to your quality of life. That is for an individual. But the question is, where do we as a society think we should have regulations that, um, that cap wealth? And I think that limit should be much higher because you want to have enough room to allow people who are only motivated or mainly motivated by financial gain to be entrepreneurial in uh, in the economy. And there I've proposed, again, for a context like the Netherlands, 10 million euros, which is actually only 0.1% of the Dutch population has more than 10 million euros. So we're talking about a tiny, tiny group that would see its wealth restricted but that group has such a concentration of wealth, as I said, for the US, it's 40, 34% in hands of the 1%, that if you were to use that for investments in the common good, in education, in healthcare, and so on, that it would massively expand the opportunities for everybody else. Ingrid Robaines holds the Chair in Ethics of Institutions at Utrecht University. And she's now the author of Limitarianism, the Case Against Extreme Wealth. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks very much.